Our very existence depends on this. This black strength. Strength that has carried us for decades, but it's undermining an important aspect of our humanity and feeding in on itself. Being strong all the time took away our ability to speak about our weaknesses, our sadness, our mental illnesses. This silence is killing us. Welcome to another edition of the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Black Doctor Speak is your source for vetted, accurate information on African-American health from some of the nation's top doctors and is sponsored by the African-American Wellness Project. All right, welcome to today's edition of the Wellness Watch. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Lenore. We have a very special guest with us today, Dr. Kim Rhodes. We were able to stop her on her journey, never-ending journey, to improve the health of this community, particularly communities of color. Uh, so we had to slow her down, give her, ask her to give us a few minutes to talk to us about things that are of interest to her. Dr. Rhodes, welcome to our program. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Well, first, let me introduce you to um, our audience. Dr. Rose is trained as a colon and rectal surgeon. And as a researcher uh, and looking at disparities in, in cancer survival, she holds a medical degree from the University of California and a master's degree in health and medical science from the University of California, Berkeley School of Public Health. She was selected as the endowment, California Endowment in Minority Health Policy at Harvard, where she earned a master's degree in public health, focusing on healthcare management and policy, and a long-standing commitment to community engagement. I'd have to say, uh, Dr. Rose, in my experience with people who have had such advanced training and at universities, sometimes they tend to hide. But you're, <laughs> right, out there. You're, right, you're right out there in the community. Tell us a little bit about your journey. Sure. Um, again, thank you for inviting me and inviting me to share uh, my story. My, um, about 30 years ago, my, um, my favorite aunt who has, I think a very similar sense of humor to mine was diagnosed with breast cancer at a very young age. And, um, she hid it from the family. Um, and, and I had had some between college and medical school, I, I had moved to Washington DC kind of to get myself together to decide what I wanted to do. Um, but also it allowed me an opportunity to spend time with my family in Virginia and I remember in preparation for writing my essays for medical school, I was talking to my cousins and my favorite aunt Jeanette about, you know, the interaction between black people and healthcare systems. And I remember my aunt saying that she wanted to be taken care of in a place where when you walk into the clinic, people know who you are, they say hi, they know you, you know, they care. And the judgment that I think typically comes with that interface about what you've chosen in your life and the bad decisions you've made that have made you unhealthy you know, do not exist. And and I know now what she was asking for is she wanted community. And um, so about two years later, after I was a, uh, in medical school in the second year, she did go ahead and, and seek treatment for this breast cancer, which was obviously growing at the time we were having this conversation. Um, and, and by that time it was, you know, very advanced. It had eroded through the skin. They were treating it, uh, you know, an infection that had erupted on top of it. Um, and then she died in the hospital getting chemotherapy. And that really impacted me greatly because, you know, as a first generation college graduate, as the first physician in our family, I thought maybe I can make us some phone calls and try to translate um, what's going on. And I remember the phone call with um, one of her physicians who first we went through a round of questions. 
um, that probably seemed a little too informed from his perspective for a black family. Um, and then he, he asked me if I was a nurse and I said, no, I'm a medical student. And as soon as I said, I'm a medical student, he hung up on me. And it just made me really realize, like, if that's the way he's going to talk to somebody who is speaking the same dialect, just imagine how he's talking to people who can't even climb aboard on like some of the language and some of the words and the rationale behind the treatment that was being given. And that really deepened my commitment to start investigating inside the healthcare system, to be asking questions about what are we doing as healthcare systems to, um, to exacerbate or make disparities worse. Um, and uh, that was the first master's degree I did at UC Berkeley. I was focused on African-American women who received their um, breast cancer care at Highland Hospital, basically in a safety net hospital. And the reason I was looking at that or was drawn to that is because I know that that's where um, a lot of, of African-American people get care. And we can kind of talk about the historical reasons for that, um, which are you know rooted in redlining and racism. And then um, the rest of my published research, if you look at the body of work, really starts to go hard on this idea that the segregation in healthcare is actually harming um, black people, particularly with cancer, but certainly with other diseases. Uh, and so that's really, my aunt is a, is a lot of the inspiration for why I do what I do, why I work in community um, is exactly for that reason. Our health systems need to be reformed in order to meet people, not just where they are, but when they do have to come to us, they're looking for community, they're looking for warmth, they're looking for empathy, and they're looking for a shared sense of, I think, the vulnerability of being human. And the problem with people, as you referred to, like me with too many degrees, been at too many great institutions, is that I think we lose that empathy and what gets trained into us is this idea that we are different than our patients and that we shall never be a patient which is not true and, and leads to, I think, a sense of like of, of misplaced superhumanism, this expectation that we never make a mistake, that we always know what's right. Um, and that in order to really feel supreme, we'll come to that later, in order to feel supreme, other people have to be less than you. And so that means patients automatically get demoted. They don't know anything about healthcare. They can't help with their own outcomes. And I, I just frankly know that this is not um, a valid kind of metaphor for us to be pursuing, and it is hurting our people. Yeah, when we get to talk about health equity, there's a notion I want to challenge about how much personal responsibility we have for some of the issues that we're dealing with. But let's, let's take a jump into the, the COVID pandemic. I mean, you come from the Ivy Tower to the streets of Oakland, and you were one of the first persons out there trying to help people respond to this pandemic. Tell us about some of the work that you've been doing. Yeah, so actually I wanted I want to give credit to Dr. Diane Havlier, who ha is an HIV um, infectious disease doctor at UCSF and leads our um, the HIV work out of the San Francisco General. Um, and, uh, just a, an amazing, humble visionary who saw the power of bringing communities together to address the pandemic and to measure where the infections were happening and effectively expose the socio-demographic distribution. So people who could stay home and work from home were not infected. And the people who had to work, who couldn't afford not to work or would lose their jobs, 
all had the infection. Um, she trained me on how to deliver COVID-19 testing um, in an outdoor environment, using social distancing, using all the principles of safety um, uh, to allow us to bring low barrier and in fact, no barrier testing um, into Bayview Hunters Point in San Francisco after she had already done it in the mission. That initiative was called United in Health. Um, we discovered a lot that really contradicted the, the narrative about black and brown people getting the most infections. The reality was um, that some groups and largely Latino groups are getting infected. But in California, when you look at who's dying, it's actually African-American people, even though their rates of infection are lower um, per capita. So, you know, by population lower than the Latino community. So when Alameda County asked uh, UCSF to come over and initiate another United in Health in Fruitvale, um, I said, well, we must partner with our colleagues in Deep East Oakland um, with whom we were already working through some of uh, the community partnership work that we were doing in the cancer center. So that allowed us to bring free, no barrier, you know, no computer, you don't need a car, um, testing into the community. We decided on a, a different model than the massive testing. We decided on pop-up um, because we learned uh, in San Francisco that if you show up in the neighborhood that you're gonna capture and be able to engage with more African-American people. Um, and that's largely because again, we get back to this, the role that community can play. The reason for that is because when your neighbor's knocking on your door to say, hey, there's testing, come out and get testing, you're gonna come and get it. And you're going to do that in a different way than if you think the public health department is doing it, or if you think UCSF is doing it, or some other governmental entity. Um, so we designed uh, effectively, we did the first pop-ups in San Francisco as United in Health District 10 in uh, Sunnydale on the street on Sunnydale Ave. And then we did the first pop-up COVID services um, in Alameda County in August of, of uh, excuse me, in September of 2020. Um, at uh, Liberation Park at the opening of the Acoma Market. And we continue to do those kinds of that, use that model consistently uh, throughout the pandemic and, and then have been able even to expand it to provide colorectal cancer screening on the street, outside, COVID safe, um, and, and engaging of people in the community who might otherwise be completely disconnected from our typical traditional healthcare systems. You know, as I look around now at the uh, number of people who are infected, getting infected, the lack of our vigilance uh, on the part of our statistics people, uh, simply because so many people are taking tests at home, and some not reporting them, I'm deeply concerned that we are taking too cavalier an attitude toward a pandemic, which is not nearly over, uh, that has the same capacity to devastate communities and without intervention, disproportionately impact communities of color. Are you comfortable with what we're doing now? No, not at all. And and I'm, I'm sure there are some people in departments of public health around the Bay Area with whom we work on a regular basis who are kind of hating the critical eye that I'm taking um, uh, to our approach. But I feel like there is a, a level of what I can only call gaslighting um, that is going on where we're hiding the fact that right now, today, we are in a surge. And we're not only in a surge, we're in a surge that has test positivity rates, which is a reflection of community spread, that are higher than Delta. 
the test positivity rates in, in Alameda County peaked out at 5.8%. They are currently in Alameda County. We are at 6.6%. So we are headed toward the peak of Omicron, which was the last winter surge. As you recall, lots and lots of people got infected with that. Um, and in San Francisco, it's actually even worse. The peak of the Delta surge last summer was 6.1% test positivity rate. We are currently at over 10% test positivity rate um, in San Francisco and rising. And as you mentioned, people are testing at home. So a lot of the, the positives are not even included in those high percentages that I just quoted. So that means we really are in a true... Uh, a true surge by any definition that we've had in these past two years, and yet you don't hear that on television. We've lifted mask mandates and and without noting the fact that after you lift the, the mask mandate, what you see is a skyrocketing of cases, um, and it does correlate in terms of the timing. So we are making a lot of the wrong choices, I think, because everybody's either in a hurry to get out of the pandemic, sick, so they can get back to business, sick of the pandemic and sick of all of the restrictions, you know, COVID fatigue is real. Um, but that doesn't mean that COVID is done with us, right? We might be done with it, but it is not done with us. And there is, there are ways to mitigate the spread. We just aren't doing that, any of them right now. Yeah, and when you combine that with what I would expect it as a tapering interest in health equity, <laughs> I mean, um, I, tell, I tell people, if you're interested in those health equity funds, you better get them quick because this country has moved in a very dangerous direction with regard to health policy, with regard to political policy. Mm -hmm. I think for health equity, uh, the money that we've had to, to make people aware and to test and to manage and to treat is going to disappear pretty quickly. It'll be disproportionately uh, distributed. I see people every day who, feel, who act like nothing has ever happened. Uh, that they've had, they've had COVID, uh, and they don't recognize that what they had was a COVID. There may be other COVIDs, and if you're not prepared, it's going to be a pretty dangerous time. Uh, yeah, the winter, the winter promises to be extremely dangerous. You mentioned that you were getting opposition. Opposition from who? Um, we're not getting opposition. We're just running into roadblocks. Um, there are recommendations that, you know, a few of us have gathered together, Dr. Noha Avalada at, at Roots Clinic, Dr. Donna um, uh, Carrie White at, um, who's um, Damon Francis, also with uh, Alameda Health System. So there's a kind of a little consortium of doctors who meet, uh, Black doctors who meet to talk about, you know, what we think we need to be doing. But when we advance some of that agenda, it sometimes it falls on deaf ears. Um, sometimes it motivates change. We have seen some responsiveness in some of our public health departments, but what we're not seeing is right now the ratcheting up of responsiveness to the fact that we are in a bona fide surge. Nobody wants to call it a surge. Nobody wants to say it's airborne. That I cannot understand. Um, and, and, and then we're strongly recommending masks, but if nobody's listening to you while you're strongly recommending, then it's a choice, a personal choice that people are going to make. So we pushed for the mask mandate to not be lifted. We sat with Dr. Tomas Aragon and Dr. Erica Pon at California Department of Public Health. Um, we implored them that if you lift the mask mandates, you're going to be confusing people about the severity of, 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 of the next surge, which we are now in because people aren't wearing masks. 
Um, and we also try to help them understand that the whiplash that people are getting from the different recommendations. I mean, only two weeks before the mask mandate was lifted, there was a publication that came out of uh, the Centers for Disease Control and a number of public health departments telling you which masks were better to reduce your chances of getting infected. And then all of a sudden the mask mandates are gone. So we said, what you're introducing is confusion. And on top of that, you're going to destroy any trust that any of the, the credible messengers that you're relying on to reach the community um, have, because it seems like what we're saying is now being contradicted by the powers that be. Um, all kinds of warnings like that, which really were not well responded to. Um, I don't, I, I don't think there's anything malicious here, but I do think that public health is, is limited in its capacity to respond to emergencies because that's not typically what public health does. No, I agree with you. I think one of the issues that we're dealing with now is the um, whole issue of vaccinating and boosting children. That's one of the mm -hmm. major issues for the African American Wellness Project. Uh, we're going to stick with this. We're going to be talking about it long after everybody else is That's gone. Right. That's right. Long after the distribution of uh, right. influence resources are gone, because this is a, a conversation, really, that only doctors who take care of children can have with parents. Um, and so that, that's been, that's going to be a really big challenge. Um, only 34% of children have received one vaccination, much less in the African-American community. Uh, and so consequently, getting them boosted, you've got to get them vaccinated. That's right. First. That's and right. you've been out there, and you've seen this whole process from, from a more global perspective. What have you learned about hesitancy? And what have you learned about ways in which we can effectively intervene with that? Well, um, so first, we don't talk, we don't use the the, the terminology hesitancy. Um, we talk about a preparation or preparedness or readiness or you know openness or whatever you want to call it that allows people to be on a spectrum. Um, uh, but I also think that the vaccine only strategy is is we miss the window. That strategy was for the beginning of the pandemic. That was the strategy for January 2021. Um, and we missed the window. So now COVID is here to stay, which means that we have to take a couple of different approaches. We have to pu push and push vaccine because we know that's the best protection. But we also have to help people understand what they can do to mitigate or lower their own risk. And so I think the educational piece has to continue. I mean, it's just giving people information. It's not trying to scare them, but it is really talking about the realities of, um, of the long-term effects <laughs> of COVID and not to shift, you know, not to shift to, okay, we'll get long COVID and then we'll treat you. I mean, that's clearly, you know, part of, of how healthcare keeps itself, sustains itself is like, let people get sick and then we'll take care of you and make money off of it. That's, you know, probably for another time. But I think we have to put out a number of different strategies. But as you mentioned, I think the key strategy is we can't just involute and disappear and suddenly say, well, you know, I guess we've decided that COVID's here to stay and it doesn't really matter. So we're not going to be here. And whenever I get any um, into any conversations that that we have been having public health, UCSF, you know, where are you going to put your attention in terms of COVID? And it always goes in these three month increments as if we think we know when it's going to be over. And the thing I always say is, well, everybody else might go away, but the work that Emoja Health does is trying to reach people who already don't trust the system, 
or who are disenfranchised and disconnected from the system, you know, for other reasons, that means that our process of getting people vaccinated or getting people up to speed in what they know and helping them make choices, that's going to take longer. So we have to stay. We have to persist. We don't just get to drop off um, and, and say, forget it. And to that end, this is a long-term commitment. So to that end, we also need to be developing the next workforce that is going to be interested and curious and committed to addressing disparities and trying to achieve health equity. So that's another piece, I think, um, of what comes out of Emojas. The people who work with us are headed off to medical school or headed off to nursing school or becoming medical assistants. And this is important because what they're taking with them is a lens of, of what health equity could look like, of how to, to be with people, to bear witness, to share with people in that understanding of the, the shared vulnerability of being a human rather than being the supreme, you know, know-it-all within the healthcare system. So yeah, that's the longer-term commitment is yeah. training up the next generation. Yeah, we always say the trust is earned. Uh, you know, I have, uh, we've had the African-American Wellness Project since almost 2002. Uh, and we really started with the concept that health equity begins from the bottom up, mm-hmm. not from the top down. We had health and other people 2000, 2005, 2010. Yeah, the gap between African Americans and the rest of America continues to be about the same. So what we say is this, is that you need to take personal responsibility for building your own healthcare system. Selecting doctor, understanding how your system works, uh, and using some of the information tools that are out there and available to challenge the system to give you the kind of care that you want. Uh, I've talked with other people in public health. Uh, You know, it's always tricky for doctors to go out into the community and try to form these partnerships because we are so used to being in charge mm-hmm. and we take credit for every cold we cure. Mm-hmm. You know, so we, we become kind of insular in that way. But when we get out into the community, I, my feeling has been that, look, I'm looking at all these articles because I edited a couple of newsletters uh, and it's always about racism. It's always about the fact that African-Americans have the worst this, that, or the other. But it's hidden in all these studies is we get there too late. And when we get there too late, when we get there at the same time, it seems we have the same outcomes. Uh, we get the same care. Yeah, we yeah, have the same yeah. outcomes. Well, I can challenge that notion. But I've seen it in prostate cancer. I just reviewed a study of black men who had prostate cancer who were diagnosed at the same time as white men, given exactly the same diagnostics, exactly yeah. the same treatment. Yes. And they did better than yes. whites. Better. Yes. So yes. what I mean is racism is there. No oh, yeah. And, and, and unconscious bias, something we should talk about uh, in, in another conversation. The system is geared against us. But mm-hmm. what that means is that you've got to be prepared to go to war just to get treatment for a cold. Well, I'm trying to get, if I'm trying to get a specialist as a doctor, it's going to take me months to see any specialists. Mm-hmm. So I know what other, what you said for your, for your um, experience with your aunt, mm-hmm. I know that in these situations, that if you're not informed mm-hmm. and you're not prepared and you don't exercise, you don't watch your weight and you don't do other things, that's part of this process. Part of your outcomes uh, and part of the responsibility for you and your family is on you. 
Uh, okay, so I'll agree that I mean I think we're all have to agree. We should, I know I think we should all take personal responsibility for our best health. But what I will push back on is that that my body of work looking at outcomes in colorectal cancer, gastric cancer, pancreas cancer, hematologic leukemia, hematologic malignancies, including acute myelogenous leukemia. What we see is differences. First of all, we see stage for stage. So you're a black woman with a stage one breast cancer compared to a, so, a, so you're going, you're going to we still see the differences. still see the differences. So I, you're going to throw real facts on me. I don't do my own data analysis of because I have a no because I have a team. Somebody else yeah, does it. But when I was doing it, my I excitement was to ask a question, which yeah. is is the difference, is there a difference in care, number one, and then does that difference in care translate to a worse outcome? Even if you exercised, you're healthy, and right. you come in with an early stage cancer. And what we found in California is the answer is yes, the differences are still there. And so I would put my little question in the computer and it would take all night for the computer to run. I put it under my bed in the morning, I'd be so excited to get my results. And those results are disappointing, but what they what they point to is an indictment of our system of care delivery. And I think, so, so that's the first part. And that's the big part I think we have to deal with if we're trying to get to population level change, okay? It's not just a bunch of individuals added together equals disparities. It's actually, right. it, it, disparities is a population level problem. That means there are system level drivers where right. I think we could shave off a big chunk of those disparities and then get down to what is uh, the outcome based on how healthy you are. Right? And then the second thing I will say is that that um, I was just uh, watching a, a documentary. There's a documentary series on one of the streaming channels. I can't remember. But um, this particular episode featured uh, a lot on the Black Panthers and there was a, a, some, a clip from Stokely Carmichael um, who made a statement that when you see a white man, you're afraid of the of of his power. And then he said, but you're not afraid of him, but you're afraid of who's behind him, who is supporting that power, the police, you know, the judicial system, right? All of the structures. And I would argue healthcare, okay? Um, when you see a black man, you're not afraid of the power behind the black man. And that's because... We don't have these structures, these networks built up that threaten to um, to call people to account because they're watching. And I think that one of the things that we could be doing in healthcare is to start to create a network of doctors who become, and I, I do this for a lot of people, I don't practice anymore, but I do it all the time. I'm, I'm your cousin, Kim who's a doctor, right? Because when you Google Kim Rhodes and you're thinking you're going to discount it because Kim Rhodes is probably a black person, you're going to read that and weep, as I like to say. And so we need to start to support our folks, not only to exercise and eat right and, you know, get screened, et cetera. We need to design new ways to make that comfortable, but then we need to follow them into the system and be advocates so that people know. And, and because I'm a surgeon, when I give people advice and I get looked up, the American College of Surgeons sends me a notification that somebody's been digging around in my background. And like I said, I would say read it and weep because it's going to be hard for you to contest based on all the education, all the things I published. I've been everywhere that all of these doctors have been and more, right? We need to build that for our people. 
so that folks have a place to call to say, okay, I have this diagnosis, I'm going in for this kind of appointment, what are the questions I need to be asking, and can I say that you are my cousin who is a doctor, right, who has sent me with these questions and wants answers. Yeah, well, this we, is about we, matching dialects. Yeah, yeah, we do that all the time mm-hmm. because we're, been, we're built on advocacy and mm-hmm. navigation yep. when people get into the system. I mean, that's, what, that's one Great. of the fun principles that we teach on our sites and with our educational programs. I have to do this all the time. The doctor, no, you know, my cousin is so so uh, Texas, and she's in the hospital. And mm-hmm. the doctors, well, I called down there, said, I'm calling you about this doctor, Nora. I'm mm-hmm. calling you about my cousin. Exactly. Everything changes. Exactly. Cousin, one quick story. cousin Michael. <laughs> I have one one quick story because uh, my people tell me that I should have more stories in my interviews. But but I was in the hospital at Alta Bates one night. And I, I was went to see a baby that was missed during the day. And you know, I don't want to give many hours because you know the, you know how quickly they'll bring me up for peer review. So anyway, I saw a judge's wife. She was crying in the lobby. I mean, her husband had had an aneurysm diagnosed in Europe. They'd flown back to San Francisco. He had been kind of put off by his own doctor in San Francisco, went to Alta Bates and was admitted, and no one saw him for 17 hours Ooh. in the hospital. This is an Alameda County Superior Court judge. Mm. So of course, I like to have a tantrum in the hospital about every three months. I mean, I don't want any friends up there, don't anybody hugging me, any of that. I want them to respect me. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be popular. I want to be respected. Mm-hmm. So when this happens, I really have a tantrum. Go up to the nurse's station, ask for the supervisor, and ask for everybody, and immediately, his room has changed, all the other things changed, because I was his advocate. So we do teach advocacy and these other things. But I, sometimes I often, because now we know what we've always known, that it's not just the illness, it's the social determinants of health, which put us in the position that we're in. And until those are adequately addressed, we're going to be fighting this fight for long after I'm out of it. But I do agree with you. Now, this is a very important piece. Uh, Dr. Kim Rhodes, we only have about 30 minutes, but we're going to have 30 minutes on a regular basis. I want to talk to you about the healthcare system. Nobody's talking about changing it in Washington. I don't hear anybody talking about health, changing health in Washington. Talk yeah. about health equity. Talk about what we're doing here locally, what we should be doing. And your busy schedule as you run from community to community, as you go from the ivory tower through the streets of Oakland. We want to get 45 minutes here and there. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. If you enjoyed our show, please remember to hit the subscribe button so that new episodes are delivered directly to you every week, as well as rate us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, listening to our show is as simple as telling your Alexa, Siri, or Google to play the Black Doctor Speak podcast. Take care, everyone.